The old man looked around the room. Shadows were deep. Oil lamps were burning. People were gathered, the men, the old man in the front, listening, attentive, some bowing, some slowly moving their heads up and down. The smell of the room, the sight of the people, the old man just uh, had a sudden memory. It had been 70 years. <laughs> 70 years could... Could it have been that long? He could see it just like it was yesterday. He was a child, just a little boy. He was in synagogue, a room just like this. Oil lamps were burning, it was dark, and some of the old men were still bowing, praying, heads bobbing up and down. Most of the people had begun to leave, but he was filled with that amazing faith of a little boy little boy who still believed in magic, in hocus-pocus, in, in a God who was up there who would really come down and do something, especially when it felt just right. And this felt right. There was something, something about the moment. It was, it was almost like, was almost like the room itself was filled with, I don't know, some otherworldly light. It was like there was almost some sense of power in the air and so as the little boy prayed he just knew that his words were being heard at the very throne of God and he prayed oh God God of our fathers send the Messiah send him now and he knew it was going to happen it was that perfect moment when you absolutely know it's going to happen. You can feel it. Every bone in your body, every fiber you have tells you this is the moment. God is about to do something amazing. It wasn't just way back in the olden days with the Red Sea and all. It will be now and here. And so the little boy just prayed again because he could still... Was, oh God of our fathers, send the Messiah... And he could almost hear the sound of angels' wings and heavenly hosts. And, and then he sensed someone had come into the room. He just felt it. He could feel their presence. And they were walking up to him. And he knew And when that hand touched his shoulder, he almost jumped out of his skin. The way only little boys can when they're both absolutely surprised and absolutely expecting it at the same time. It was like power had flowed from heaven above right through his little body, right down to his little toes, and they were actually trembling. He almost imagined he was floating in the air for a moment. And as he turned around, tears welling up in his eyes to see the miracle that God had done. And he started the sentence, he says, What is it that my Lord the... Ma it's time to come home, son. 
you're going to be late for supper. It was his dad. His dad glaring at him. As he walked out of the synagogue, he looked around. There's no otherworldly light. No mysterious power in the air. Just old men praying. Same dingy little room it had always been. There was nothing. And something inside him died a little bit that day. You know what that's like. You know, children believe in magic. This American Life has a program called Kids Logic. And it begins with the story of Rebecca. Rebecca was in the second grade. And Rebecca had gone to school and she was talking with her friend Rachel. And she comes home and she is so excited when she tells her mom that she now knows who the tooth fairy is. And her mom's like, wow, you know, you know, you absolutely know. I have been talking to my friend Rachel and Rachel has told me because Rachel was in bed. She put the tooth under the pillow and she managed to wake up just as the tooth fairy came into the room. And so now Rebecca knew the, the truth of who the truth fairy was. Rachel had told her. And she looks at her mom. And she says, the tooth fairy is Ronnie Loberfield, Rachel's dad. <laughs> and her mom looked back and said, don't tell anyone. It's a secret. And from that point on, every time she left a tooth under the pillow and there was a little dollar there in the morning, there was a little note that said, Love, Ronnie. <laughs> ah, that's how kids think. You know, kids. Kids believe in that stuff, the hocus-pocus stuff, the magic stuff. You've, you've been there. Maybe it was a night at church camp or CIY or something, and you just knew, you just knew God was going to do something. And it didn't happen. And just like the little boy in the synagogue, that faith you have, that confidence you have, that naivety you have, that childish stupidity you had, to believe that there was any such thing as magic and hocus-pocus in the world just died a little. That is, in many ways, the story of our lives, at least for some of us. We've grown up in the church. We've heard the songs. We, we even remember when we believed all of them. We remembered when we prayed, not because it was a duty or we felt guilty, but we actually thought God was going to do something. And what really kills us is in those moments when we don't just think it, but we feel it. It's just the right moment. Like everybody's standing in a line, they're holding hands, they're singing a praise song, the air is filled with something. You absolutely know that's when it's going to happen. And it doesn't. And you get up in the morning... And it's just another day. 
another ordinary, mundane day. And that's always, of course, a day without magic. A day without hocus-pocus, a day without a God who's up there and actually does something. See, everybody's always expecting a Messiah who's always coming and never quite here. Everybody's expecting that when the Messiah comes, you could recognize him because, and look at, the truth is, we actually buy into this because it's how we always depict him. Do you ever wonder why people had to be told who Jesus was in a crowd? Why couldn't they have just said, oh, he's the guy that glows? He's the guy that just before he comes into the room, you can tell because the orchestra in background music is suddenly telling you something amazing is about to happen. You know, the orchestra always tells you, like in those movies when the person is backing up because the bad guy's behind them and the orchestra's building up, and you always know he's right there. And you still jump anyway because you always get the cues. You always know that. But when Jesus, at the end of his sermon at Nazareth, disappears into the crowd, Seth Wilson said years ago, he disappeared in the crowd because he was so ordinary. He looked like everybody else. There was nothing about him that was attractive. He was just absolutely mundane. You would not have seen him, and had you seen him, you would not have seen anything other than just an ordinary guy. I've always thought if you could paint a painting of Jesus and the disciples coming down the road together, maybe we should change the whole painting. Maybe we should have these guys come down there, and there in the middle is an extremely handsome guy, a face that you would just trust, eyes that are just amazing, a robe that is the only white robe in the entire group, but somehow you tell the audience who's looking at your painting, oh, that's a guy named Judas Iscariot. And in the back is kind of a, I don't know, kind of a stocky guy, eyebrows a little too big, his you know, teeth are not exactly straight, he's kind of stooped over a little bit, he could never be in a Hollywood movie, he looks, like, looks more like a plumber than a messiah, if you know what I mean, okay? And it's like, well, that's, that's Jesus. He's ordinary. And if you had met him, every one of your senses would have told you He's ordinary. If you touched him, he would have felt ordinary. If you had listened to him, his voice would have sounded ordinary. Oh, he might do some extraordinary things, but if you caught him at other moments, what would have struck you was, he's nobody. I always thought of Nicodemus coming in the middle of the night in a cold spring night and, and meeting in the shadows and holding up the torchlight to meet this great teacher that he had heard about. And Nicodemus, this great scholar, and the disappointment, because I think before he got even close to him, he could smell the smell of body odor and hard work and stale fish that you smelled when you got close to a common man. And when he held up the torchlight, he saw nothing that made him stop for a moment and say, whoa, this is exactly what I thought the Messiah would look like. In many ways, he went there in the middle of the night thinking it would be the perfect moment and probably went away confused and disappointed because he'd been expecting magic, hocus-pocus. And all he met was a Nazarene common laborer with calloused hands, ragged clothes, who smelled vaguely of work and fish, and spouted something about being born 
again. It's one thing to be disappointed as a child. You know that. All of us here have discovered the reality of the fact that God does not dance to our tune, does not move when we're expecting him, does not wait for those right moments, doesn't always come exactly when we think he should come or do exactly the thing he thinks we should do. But can I tell you how much more soul-killing it is when it happens to you and you're not a child anymore. And the old man could remember that moment. He had, I don't know, allowed himself, stupidly perhaps, to actually believe that God was going to do something. He had joined the others who had followed the Nazarene. I imagine he had felt that same excitement, that same wonder, that same certainty that now, finally, after all these centuries, God is actually going to do something. But once again, all that wishful thinking came up against the hard truth of reality. And it was a long, dreary afternoon. He and his wife were walking home. They just couldn't stay around anymore. You know, if you've let yourself hope once again, believe once again that maybe God was actually going to do something, then only to have it crushed. You just want to get off by yourself. You just got to get alone. You, in fact, just being around anybody else. You don't want to hear the explanations. You, you don't want to hear little pipe wishes. You don't want to hear wishful thinking. You don't want to hear a lot of religious jargon. You just want to go off by yourself and once again accept the reality that the world you live in is a world that is in the here and the now. And there is no magic and there is no hocus pocus. And whatever God might be up there, if there's even someone up there, he's not going to step in and do anything. You're on your own. And so he and his wife were walking with their heads down. And they don't even notice the man coming up beside them. You can see it on our campus when students are really depressed. They manage to walk, hardly lifting their eyes off the ground. There's something about the way our bodies are connected to our souls. It's always intrigued me. You can tell if a person is discouraged, dejected, their body will tell you. We sometimes imagine these bodies are some external part of what it means to be human, but no, you are soul and body, and both are you. And when your heart is broken, your body cannot hide it. Sometimes the cruelest thing we ever say in church is when we say to somebody, come on, smile when their heart is broken. I don't know, maybe the church is the one place where you shouldn't have to pretend. But he's walking along, Cleopas, and his unnamed partner, and I think it's his wife. And the intruder walks up 
beside them and tries to strike up a conversation. You can almost hear the intruder in that sort of small talk way that is so irritating when you're heartbroken and depressed. And the last thing you want to do is have talk with a stranger say, Say, why are you guys so glum? And in Cleopas's reply, you can hear the bitterness, almost antagonism, both at the interruption and at the question as he says, Are, are you the only one? In Jerusalem, that doesn't know what's happened, doesn't know the things that have taken place. And the intruder says, uh, I don't know, what things? Of course, the great irony of the question is the one who is being asked is the only one who actually does know what's happened. Cleopas doesn't realize that yet, so he now launches into this song. And you know the song. It's the pathetic pity song that we have when God has not danced to our tune, when we are once again discouraged and disappointment, and the belief we had in magic and miracles and a God who would step into our world has been shattered by the death of a mom, the divorce of a parents, bills you can't pay, a doctor's report that you weren't prepared for. He says, about Jesus of Nazareth, you see, we, we, and if you look at the word, it's really interesting, we had hoped, had hoped. That's the pathetic song of somebody in whom hope has finally died, not just the death of a child, but the death of an adult who dared to hope once again. And now that hope has once again been crushed, and it is far worse. We had hoped that he was the one that was going to redeem Israel. And then the sad little epilogue, and what is more, he is dead. Dead and gone. In fact, it's the third day since he was dead and gone. And we just couldn't stick around that group of, I don't know, misguided followers anymore. Then the intruder spoke. The words were a rebuke, but they were gentle, almost whimsical. <laughs> oh, foolish people. <laughs> Don't you see? And it says, beginning with Moses, the intruder began to tell them. It says, Don't you see what it's about? Do you remember Eve? Do you remember the seed of woman? Do you remember the wounding of the heel and the crushing of the serpent? Do you remember? Do you remember the story of Isaac? And there was there was the ram whose head was still bleeding from the thorns it had been caught in, and the ram was was now going to provide the substitute there on that mountain where one day the temple would stand. And it simply says, beginning with Moses and the prophets, the intruder explained to them that the Christ had to suffer, that this was what was planned, that this was not something that had failed. It was, in fact, always had been there. And then they come to Emmaus, the little town about seven miles from Jerusalem, and the intruder is going to go on his way, and Cleopas says, Excuse me, sir, why don't you come eat with us? Because you don't really fellowship with somebody until you sit down at a table with them. Sir, would you just please come and... Eat with us. And so the stranger agrees to do this and goes into the house and have a little bit of bread and the wine brought out. And, and then the really unexpected happens. Really unexpected. The stranger 
in a real breach of protocol. I mean, this is not at all something normal. Suddenly reaches out and takes the bread himself and lifts it up and begins to say the Kiddush Bruhata Adonai Elohainu Ha'olam. Blessed are you, Lord of God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. And then Cleopas saw it. The hands. The hands and the face. And he looks over at his wife and she is staring at him and both of them, their eyes are big as saucers because at the same time, both of them have realized. And they look back. And Luke tells us Jesus had vanished from their sight. Didn't our hearts burn within us? And Cleopas knew it was magic. Not tricks, not pretend, but genuine, honest-to-God magic. And they burst up from the table and they go back to Jerusalem laughing and talking like school children on the first day of summer. And they go bursting into the room where the disciples are. And I mean, the disciples are already going berserk. Jesus is risen from the dead. He's appeared to Peter. And so and there's all of these stories and these resurrection. And Cleopas says, wait a minute, I want to tell you something. I'm going to tell you a story about God and miracles. And you might have been expecting he would talk about Jesus walked with us along the road. He walked with us. He talked with us. We heard the best Sunday school lesson ever. He might have even talked about how suddenly they looked over and they saw it was Jesus. They saw his face and he was there. But Luke is very careful how he words it. It says, Jesus was made known to them in the breaking of the bread. And if you go back and look at the description Just a few verses earlier, you'll see how carefully Luke words what he says. Because Luke says, when they looked back, Jesus had vanished from their sight. It doesn't say he left the room. It doesn't say he wasn't there. It simply says, in that form, they didn't see him anymore, but they saw the bread broken. Charles Taylor, in his book, A Secular Age, describes the challenge all of us have living in this world inundated by what he calls exclusive humanism. We have been raised to see the world exactly like the secular people around us see it, and we largely accept that. In fact, we largely look out upon the world around us and make sense of everything pretty much the same way an atheist would make sense of everything. We plan our church campaigns. We plan our marketing Um, We do all of these things exactly as a secular, even when we do worship. Most of what we do in worship would be at least understandable to somebody who is not a believer. And so we manage to say, we see the same world as everybody else, but now we're going to posit that, oh, but we still believe somewhere up there, pie in the sky, by and by, there's a God. And he once did a lot of really interesting and amazing stuff, and one day he's going to come back. But between now and then, more or less on our own. 
And I want to tell you that is so not true. I want to tell you that you are surrounded by a God who reaches into our world, but just as he did then, he reaches in in the mundane while you're waiting for visions and miracles and special music and white lights and people that glow in the dark, God is right there in front of you. When Moses got up on that morning at the age of 80, nothing felt abnormal, nothing felt weird. Even when he sees the bush burning, nothing about it says it was spectacular. And it's only as he approaches it that he hears those remarkable words, take off your shoes, you are on holy ground. And so is Cleopas now, looks out as an old man at the Christians that are gathered. And he tells them, it was a miracle. It was magic. It was genuine hocus-pocus, knock your socks off, can't believe it. Some of them look a little confused. But one of the women in the front nods her head. She gets it. It's always one of the women that would get it first. She whispers to her daughter, It was the bread. Cleopas smiled. It was the bread. When we partake of this meal, It is not a memorial like the Lincoln Memorial, something you can do to think about somebody who's dead and gone. Not a bad thing to do, but that's not what it's about. It is an invitation to share with the living Christ. It is an invitation to step out of time. It is an invitation to embrace the reality that if you are willing, the upper room meal is closer to you than what you had for breakfast this morning. It is the chance to share in the living body and blood of Jesus. That's what it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 16, a remarkable verse, one that we sort of skirt around because we're not sure we want to believe in this kind of miracle anymore. But here's what it says. Is not the cup of blessing that we bless a sharing, a participation, a koinonia in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a sharing, in the body of Christ. For just as there is one bread, so we who are many are one body. And so we come now to something that most of you do on a regular basis. But you often hear words that would make perfectly good sense to an atheist make perfectly good sense to a materialist. We talk about it as, oh, this is just a symbol, this is just an object lesson, this is just a time to think about Jesus. Well, we could certainly do that, though I would suggest to you with media and technology we might do a far better job than with a little bit of bread and juice. But what if the Bible means exactly what it says? What if this is an opportunity to share in the body and in the blood of Jesus Christ, the living Christ? Is there anything you need more than sitting down at table with Jesus. As Paul says, For I received of the Lord that which I also passed on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took a loaf of bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body 
which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The body of Christ. Broken. In the same way, after supper, he also took the cup and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Remembrance, biblically, can mean a lot more than just think about. Like when Paul says in Galatians chapter 2, remember the poor. It doesn't mean think about them. Be aware of them. Recall them. Don't forget there are poor people. He means go out and do something. When Christ says, do this in remembrance of me, he means participate in me. And you talk about magic. This phrase, this is my body, is real. And it is the real hocus pocus because it is hoc es corpus meum. This is my body. Will those that will be coming to assist in serving please be coming forward? In just a moment, we're going to give you a chance to share in the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist, communion. This morning, all of the bread that we're using uh, does not have wheat in it, so if you cannot have wheat or gluten, you're free to take part. You don't need to worry. We're also going to use the method of distributing the Lord's Supper that's called intincture, which is you will take and break off a piece of the bread, and then you will simply dip it into the fruit of the vine. And from this, then, you will share in the bread. Let's have a word of prayer, and then the servers will be at the station, and I want you to feel free to just stand up and come. If you are here and you're not a baptized Christian, that's perfectly okay. If there's any reason why you're not absolutely sure you want to take the Lord's Supper, that's fine. Be careful. This is something that is for the children of God. But when you have finished taking the Lord's Supper and praying and having time, then you're free to leave. I only ask that you not talk until you're either outside the building or all the way downstairs in the classrooms, other than just the whispered talk that you will have between you and the Lord Jesus Christ to reaffirm that here, this morning, you believe God is doing magic because he is reaching into the world as he did once in flesh and blood. He is reaching in again in bread and in juice and we can fellowship with the living Son of God. Let's pray. Holy God, Lord, rekindle within us that confidence we had that you reach into our world that we do not solve our problems or grow our churches or find life solutions in exactly the same way as the unbelievers around us and simply ask you at the end to bless our secular plans. But to God, we embrace you, believe in you, operate in ways that would seem unreasonable to those that do not know you, but to those who do. They understand. And so, Father, now we would share in this bread, in this cup, 
through them, Father, in ways we cannot explain, cannot understand, do not even need to explain, to fellowship with the body and the blood of your Son, our Savior, who is alive and here and with whom we are there in the upper room, in that fellowship. We ask you all of this in the name of your Son, our Savior. Amen.